Hey, this is Raymond Benson, and you're listening to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. You're listening to Rogue Agents, Episode 25, featuring Ian Fleming's The Living Daylight Short Story. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Rogue Agents Podcast, a part of Honor Majesty's Secret Podcast channel, brought to you by our fine Patreon sponsors and White Rocket Entertainment. I'm your host, Agent Jason, codenamed the Weasel Skull. Joining me as co-agents today, and we're going to find out what's the most 007 thing each of them has done as we go around the room here. We'll go ahead and start with uh, my brother, Jared. Jared, how are you this evening, and what is the most 007 thing you've done since we've last met? Well, hello, Jason, to our listening audience. Uh, Man, actually, I haven't done anything super 007 since we last met, but I did do something very green for. Man, that could be even cooler. (laughs) You would think, but no. Uh, You know, and it's great that green forest from the living daylights if you remember they're fighting the kitchen and like hot boiling water got thrown around uh yesterday i burnt the crap out of my arm <laughs> in the kitchen that's gonna end a fight isn't it it's oh like oh my gosh I'm, out. I'm done yeah like i didn't realize how bad 350 degree chicken grease could hurt you know but yeah you know I, jason you you and i both old combat vets and, mm-hmm. and I, i'm a tough guy but you're right as soon as 350 degree chicken grease gets involved <laughs> it's like napalm it's like time out, <laughs> time out. <laughs> so uh yeah i burnt myself that's what i got yeah if you want to find out more about green four you can check it out in the james bond lexicon no um no, you except guys- you can't because he's not in there Oh, I was gonna say it in, in the in the 2.0 edition soon soon coming, <laughs> yeah. right? He's on right the website. He, he's on All the, right. He's on the website oh, update. Okay, he's on the He's website. mentioned in my copy because Alan signed it <laughs> something like I'm not sure who this Green Four guy is, and they signed it. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, Alan, the next time we run into each other, you're gonna have to sign mine and put Green Four into my copy as well. Uh, we've been picking on Alan enough. Why don't we go ahead and uh, introduce our good friend Alan here and find out what's the most 007 thing he's done. 007 was, there was a 007 in New York, and we've got Alan in New York, so maybe there's a connection here. Well, actually, thank you, but I'm in, actually in wonderful downtown Cleveland, so not quite New York. Well, no, actually, the Avengers movies were filmed here to, to make it look like New York, so I guess it is New York, so in the Avengers world, so no disrespect, Cleveland. I'm here for work, so I've actually been on uh, a lot of work travel recently, and two weeks ago I was in New Orleans and ended up was staying on the edge of the uh, the French Quarter, and one morning I did my usual thing of going out and finding a local diner for breakfast in the French Quarter, and suddenly realized as I was tucking into my wonderful New Orleans-style omelets that I was actually about two blocks away from the Filet of Sol location. Oh, I was going to ask you if you went to Filet of Soul. So uh, early one morning, I took a walk from the diner down and found the right lamppost, Stutter's lamppost, where, you know, you don't want to watch funerals from. And right across the street is the Filet of Soul location, which is now a, a boutique, but you can still very much recognize it from the three half circle windows above it. And it wouldn't take much to actually redress it as the Filet of Soul. So, and it was good to be there early in the morning because there was no other crowds and tourists around. That was pretty damn cool just to be uh, walking those streets. They're still very recognizable from the movie. Virtually nothing's changed. So, What did you drink with your breakfast? Black coffee. <laughs> oh, okay. So it wasn't something cold that you'd get with no ice, which I've heard be extra. <laughs> That's, That's extra, extra man. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds exciting, Alan. Hopefully you've had a safe and pleasant journey so far and a safe and pleasant journey on your way home. And uh, we're really grateful that you found some time and some bandwidth here to join us this evening. Thank you, sir. Good to be here as always. <laughs> yeah. 
Come on, man. What kind of 007 things have you been up to? Well, I actually thought about it, and I did do some 007 kind of a thing. A few weeks ago, we went on a vacation, and I actually got to sit by the poolside in my terry cloth onesie. And, you know, I was just kind of having some fun and, and got to be able to talk to my wife a little bit and then tell her somebody came to talk to us. And I said, hey, you got to go. It's it's man talk now. <laughs> that worked <laughs> out for it. Not that well. I got a sunburn. <laughs> <laughs> Besides that, I did some research just as we were talking here. And did you guys know that combining rookie agents and rogue agents, we've done 51 episodes. This is episode 51. Sounds about right. So congratulations. That's pretty cool. Milestone number 51. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we're kicking Daniel Craig's butt and getting these uh, products out, aren't we? But Jason, Uh, what have you, what's Bondiest thing you've been doing? Oh, thank you for asking, Pat. I was really hoping somebody would ask because I've got a special announcement. When we started Rookie Agents, I began my quest to read all of the Ian Fleming novels. I'm a slow reader. But I just finished the last Ian Fleming group of short stories when I read through this book. So I've read every Ian Fleming, James Bond novel and short story. Cool. And then and now I was going to say, like, did you know about the secret one that only four people in the Fleming <laughs> Foundation know about? And I'll be like, no, I didn't read that one. No, I was actually just going to say congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. I, I felt like I was a bit of a poser. Seeing the movie like a bazillion times, each movie at least double digit times, but hadn't read through all of the novels. And so how long I did really it take you? Them. Gosh, I think mean, you started that quest like a year ago. Yeah, it you took know, me probably. It wasn't that long ago. Actually, it took me about a year and a half okay. to get through all of them. I didn't read like straight through. You know, I I, no. I, I would read like a Bond novel, then I read some other sure. fiction and some nonfiction. And so I was reading Smart. different stuff, but I put it in the rotation. I was reading one pretty regularly. That's I cool. think somewhere Agent I is looking at you, nodding, approving. Oh, I, th- I thought you say shaking his head took me too long. No, <laughs> he's approving that you've done the done the journey. I feel like I've accomplished something. But I have definitely you- have taken college courses that I've less proud of than what what I achieved with these Bond novels. And uh, as we talked about, this is the 25th episode of our ongoing series on this channel called MI6 Rogue Agents, where we traverse the 007 universe. And that could mean books, and it could mean music or video games. 007 adjacent stuff. We've been doing some Man from Uncle type of things. You know, we've done some Bond comics. Essentially, any medium that connects to the Bond franchise that we love so much here at On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, eh, we're going to cover it. We're short one Delvin Dark Web Williams, but we got a good crew here, so we'll round it out. Keep calm and carry on, as they say. All right, fellas. So before we kick off on our journey, through the short story, Living Daylights. So since we've been doing this, I've brought several short stories to this podcast. And as you read through this one, I'm curious, did you have a particular Bond actor in your mind's eye as you were reading through it? If so, which one was it? Let's start with Pat. Did you have one in in mind or? Boy, that's a good question. I'm going to say not particularly at this time. I did think a lot about the movie, though. So I guess we'd have to say... T-Dalt? Yeah, would maybe be on my mind. Because I thought about a lot of the movie and how this kind of correlated with that. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, what about you, Jared? I was guessing you were thinking T-Dalt all the way, right? Pretty much. Like, I have a, a fairly generic bond that I see in my head when I read a lot of the books. But when we hit that phrase... Strawberry jam. <laughs> in this book, because it's in the book. It is in the book, yes. I was like, it's Tito all day, every day at this point. <laughs> so I mean, of course it was more influenced but with Timothy Dalton than anything. But once I once I read the glorious words strawberry jam, it was it was all T Dalt from there on in. What about you, Alan? Was it was it T Dalt in your mind's eye, or do you have like a generic? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it was Timmy D for me. Like Jared, I normally have like a generic bond in mind when i when i read the bond in prose it's sort of a combination of 
the comic strip Bond and a bit Brosnan, a bit Dalton, just some sort of amalgam. But this one is so close. The movie used so much of this short story almost verbatim, beat for beat. Uh, yeah, it's very difficult to disassociate it with Timothy Dalton in your mind. So, yeah, for me, reading this was Timothy Dalton all the way. Let me ask you this, then, Alan, and I'll go around, go around the horn one more time and get everybody else's opinion on it as well. Do you think any one of the Bond actors best stands out as the literary Bond, the closest to the literary Bond? And if so, which one? Yeah, I think it's got to be Timothy Dalton, one, because he he made the effort to go back and read all the Flemings and he wanted to play the Fleming, you know, the Fleming Bond. And he played that tougher Bond that you get. Yeah, I think he's the closest that we've ever got to the Fleming Bond on the screen. I mean, yeah, he was picking up on other stuff that had already been done with the movie Bond. The movie Bond is a different character. So none of them have been exactly the Fleming's Bond, but I think Timothy Dalton got the closest. I'm thinking Jared's probably not going to argue with you here, but let's listen to what Jared has to say. (laughs) I won't take up any more time than I need to say I agree (laughs) with Alan. Timmy D. Bond is Fleming Bond. Okay, and I'm kind of interested because I know our... Well, recently rookie, now full rogue agents, both Pat and Delvin really liked Daniel Craig. And Daniel Craig was, you know, kind of in that same vein, wanted to play more the literary Bond. I'm curious, Pat, are you on board with Timmy D train or are you going to lean more towards Sir Daniel? I'm caught between the both of them now that you say that. My mind's eye, depending on the story, will flip between the two. But as far as the other Bonds, yeah, I really can't see with what we've read that way yeah. at all. But I do agree with Alan, too. I do also kind of mold in that comic book, uh, the comics that we've read recently, to that character. Oh, good point. Yeah, no, I can see that, where, where it's kind of a, there's a liter- literary amalgamation, kind of, of, of all the characters. But yeah, no, I, I'm with you guys. After finishing the, the Fleming books, as much as I love Sir Sean, still my favorite James Bond, like, eh, it's not really, you know, I don't really picture him in the books so much. And Roger Moore, definitely, definitely not, even though I love him too. So Yeah, I don't think Roger Moore could sit steady on a bed or whatever he, uh, you know. Unless <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a lady on it. <laughs> Bond, take the shot. Take what are you doing on that bed? <laughs> oh, what? what? <laughs> Never mind. All right. Before we, this thing gets too far out of control, let's get to our rogue subject for this episode. As we talked about, the book title was The Living Daylights. Its original title was Berlin Escape, and it was originally published in the Sunday Times on February 4th, 1962 and the writer was Ian Fleming. The plot description was was pretty simple. M has a job for James Bond, and it's dirty business. A Russian operative wants to defect to the West, but the Russians know the defection and have sent one of their best assassins to stop him. Now it's up to 007 to travel to Berlin and protect the vulnerable Russian defector by finding the assassin and eliminating the killer before he, or she, can murder MI6's potential new intelligence asset. It was a pretty lean and fast read, but was it a first read or a reread? And this is a formality, but I'll go ahead and start with you, Alan. I don't know how many times I've read this story. Um, <laughs> it is one of my favorite Fleming short stories. Um, it's one I dip into even if I'm not actually doing a sequential Fleming read. So, yeah, I have literally no idea how many times I've read this, but it's a lot. All right. What about you, Pat? Well, it's a first read for me. And Jared? It is a reread for me as well, but I will embellish my answer by saying this is the first time I've read it in this hardcover I picked up. It's a 1966 hardcover and one of the benefits of finding it on the cheap it doesn't have its dust jacket but i want to let folks know if you have that cool 66 hardcover version take that dust jacket off and check out the cool gold embossed rifle with octopus tentacle that is on the cover it is so cool you might never know it was there if you've never taken the dust jacket off that's pretty sweet 
Octopussy and the Living Daylights. All in one great set of stories. Well, let's talk about it. Let's go around the horn and we'll start with Pat. Give me a high or a low or a what the? What'd you think of the story? I'm going to go with a high. And as always with the last few stories that we've read from the novels, this really gives you a different take on Bond. And I just really enjoy the way Fleming writes, you know, it so detailed and puts you into the story and the surrounding that's going on that this was one of them that I like, Hey, I got to read this by Wednesday. So I'm going to break it up. It's broke it up by like 11 pages a day. I had to read just so I could, you know, pace myself, but I found myself reading a little extra each day and enjoying it, you know, not wanting to put it down. And I think that it has to do with Fleming and the way he writes, he can just put you into that mood and what's going on in the surrounding of it. Yeah, I agree. He has a way of both describing the physical environment. So you feel like you're there and he has a way of really describing the mindset of the character in this case, really centralized on James Bond. Yeah. So you really get what he's going through. You get the fact that he's, not really happy to be doing this. Mm-hmm. He plays some little mind games with him in there. Just like, no, you son of a bitch. You're sending me to kill somebody. Say the words. You say the words. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, and and you kind of get that. No, I agree. I, I think that's one of the big takeaways I've had with Fleming was just, you know, he's associated, obviously, with creating one of the greatest fictional characters in the world, one of the most recognizable fictional characters in the world. But what I really grew to appreciate was the quality of his writing. The man was definitely a master storyteller and a master of his craft. Mm-hmm. Good point, Pat. Alan, what are your thoughts? You say you've read this a lot, so I, I'm taking you got some highs at least. Yeah, very much so. Like I said, it's one of my favorite Fleming short stories. I'm going to pick up on, on what Pat was just saying. For me, this is probably one of the most atmospheric Bond tales. Like you said, it really just pulls you in, makes you feel that you're sitting there in that cold room in Berlin, overlooking the Berlin Wall, and just the waiting and the, the sheer drudgery of that, but also yeah. knowing that he has to do this thing that he doesn't want to do at the end of the day. Also like the fact that this is Bond as a working member of British intelligence, he's not the super spy. He's not up against the big bad. It's like the boss has called him in and told him he's got a job to do. It's not what he normally does, but he's got to go do it anyway, even if he doesn't like it. He's just a working stiff in this one. I mean, or yeah. albeit a working stiff who's been told to go out and kill somebody, but he's just a working stiff. He's not the suave, sophisticated super spy in this. He's, he's a guy doing a down and dirty job because that's what he's paid to do. And that plays on his mind. So I think it's that's all brilliantly done in this one. Yeah, I agree. I really got that sense. I will say this probably when the films talk about borrowing from the literature and say, you know, the best bonds borrow from the literature. This is probably a very close from the book to the screen adaptation. But you're right. What's missing in it is... It took him three days. He didn't know when in that mm-hmm. three-day window he was going to have to do this. So the mental toll on that had to be brutal. The other piece of that is his preparation for it. They don't show the amount of time and effort he puts into perfecting his craft, learning how to fire the weapon, how he goes out and he doubles the range of the target that he's expected to hit just so he knows. You know, there's that old saying that, Amateurs practice till they get it right, and professionals practice till they can't get it wrong. And that's what you see Bond out there doing. He's a professional, and he's doing a very dirty, dreary job. And I agree 100% that working class stiff and putting his all into it. I'm excited to see what Jared has for us, because he usually picks something. He's got some, yeah, he's got a passage marked in there. I'm interested to see what, what he has for us. Well, Jason, I'm glad you asked. I do have a passage picked out to read, and it's interesting that I think we all are talking about the same thing in the same scene when it comes to the setup and the discussion with M. And with that, I will read from the book. A couple of paragraphs, so everybody just relax. 
sip your martinis. All right. And away we go. Where do I come in, sir? But James had guessed the answer. Guessed why M was showing his dislike of the whole business. This was going to be dirty work. And Bond, because he belonged to the 00 section, had been chosen for it. Perversely, Bond wanted to force M to put it in black and white. This was going to be bad news, dirty news, and he didn't want to hear it from one of the section officers or even from the chief of staff. This was to be murder. All right, let M bloody well say so. Where do you come in, 007? M looked coldly across the desk. You know where you come in. You've got to kill the sniper. And you've got to kill him before he gets 272. That's all. Is that understood? The clear blue eyes remained cold as ice, but Bond knew that they remained so only with an effort of will. M didn't like sending any man to a killing, but when it had to be done, he always put on his fierce, cold act of command, and Bond knew why. It was to take some of the pressure, some of the guilt, off of the killer's shoulders. So now Bond, who knew these things, decided to make it easy and quick for him. He got to his feet. That's all right, sir. I suppose the chief of staff has gotten all the gen. I'd better go and put in some practice. I wouldn't want to miss. He walked to the door. M said quietly, Sorry to have to hand this to you. Nasty job. But it's got to be done well. That's the passage I picked, and I want to hone in on that last sentence. Jason, you already alluded to the fact, yeah, he's forcing M to do it. M's forcing it as a command to take some of the burden off of the murderer, in this case. And I love the last sentence. Sorry to have to hand this to you. Nasty job, but it's got to be done well. I love that well. He could have ended the sentence that it's got to be done, but he said it's got to be done well. So Mm -hmm. who did he pick? 007. Yep. Love it. Yeah, I agree. That passage really stuck with me. I think just going around the horn this first time, I think it stuck with all of us. So great, great passage, great selection. Yeah, I got a lot of confidence in it when y'all kept mentioning it. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, I picked the right passage. <laughs> I almost went with just strawberry jam. <laughs> strawberry jam would have been also correct. <laughs> that and I scared, whatever, I scared the living daylights out of her. <laughs> yeah, when I saw it in the movie, I was like, that's kind of a dumb thing. <laughs> but then when I read it in the book, I was like, okay, it makes sense. Well, let's go around again. I think we got more to say on this story. Pat, what else you got? I find it interesting how the novels kind of go into the movies. This one, I wanted to, as I was reading it, I wanted to kind of picture this as like a a prelude or so to The Living Daylights. You kind of mentioned it before. It gives it more detail that he was there for like three days or, you know, four days or at least trying to get there and then having to sit there for three days. You know, what's he do during the day? between the times that he had to be there, that this was going to happen out of those three days. You know, the rest of the day he's trying to, you know, goes to museums, sits around, does different things just to kind of keep his mind off of that heavy pressure that was on his shoulders of what he had to do. So I just always fascinated the difference between literal bond and movie bond. There's just so much separations between the two. But I think this one as you guys have mentioned before, is more truer in the movie than the rest of the other movies that were out there and wherever they pulled from. Just got me thinking about the movie more and all that happens in it to go, wow, out of this little story, they pulled all this other into a movie. And it's really cool to see, you know, just the differences between this bond and the movie bonds. Which is really fascinating to me to say this property just by itself has so much else going on somewhere out, you know, in a different medium that you could take this and put it into different mediums and just tell a bunch of different stories and fascinating stories. Yeah, it's pretty funny. After finishing my quest through the Fleming Bonds, I've heard it said so many times, you know, and we've had it on our show. Uh, where folks will drop in and say, you know, from the literary bond, for example, and say, oh, hey, this they took this from the book and this from the book. And to read through and see where they got the idea. Okay, this is where they got the idea for that sniper scene in Living Daylights, or this is where they got the idea for the Sotheby scene in Octopussy, has been very interesting for me. 
to go back and see it. I think what the books give you in this one in particular, like it really opens up all your other senses. You know, when he says, I have to put on that damnable mask again with the smell of my breath because he's been sitting in there with it for like three days. That's something you don't get out of the Bond movies, but it brings an appreciation. Like Jared and Alan were saying, the worksmanship and the sweat equity that you have to put into this business um, that you don't always get an appreciation from in the films. So have you all found Bond through the movies or, you know, Alan, did you find it the reverse of that through the novels and then the movies? Uh, No, it was the movies first, but it wasn't many of them before I started reading Fleming. Um, I probably saw maybe two, can't work out the exact dates, but probably maybe three of the movies before I then discovered the Fleming books and started reading Fleming. So I started reading Fleming when I was pretty, you know, I was probably, I don't know, 12 when I picked up my first Fleming story um, and then just sort of read them on and off as I was growing up in my teenage years. So, yeah, it was pretty much a parallel with both the books and the movies. Yeah. Do you carry the same weight for both or or this the respect of both? I respect both, but for me, uh, the Fleming is my inspiration. Yeah. I love the okay. movies. The movies are great entertainment, mm-hmm. but as a, you know, just as a writer and stuff. Yeah. You were saying earlier about Fleming's writing skills for a long, long time. It was very disparaged that he was just, you know, he wrote, as he put it, you know, airport thrillers, things to be read quickly. But the more you study Fleming, the more you read Fleming, you realize what actually a great craftsman he was. What a great wordsmith yeah. he was. How about uh, Jared and Jason quickly? Well, I can say for me, it was the movies. Definitely. I think I've shared before the first movie I saw was Thunderball. I was watching it. Actually, it was when after Jared was born, he was he was kind of a cowlicky baby. So it was uh, I couldn't sleep. He was crying. Dad was up. I was up. So we watched Thunderball. And I was like, this is amazing. And so that's what got me into Bond. And I probably didn't read the first my first Fleming book till I was a teenager. And to be honest, I didn't appreciate it because I wanted it to be like the movie. I think the first one I read was Goldfinger. I said, this isn't like Goldfinger at all. You know, <laughs> I wanted to read in the book what I saw on, on the film. And, and obviously it wasn't quite like that. So I didn't really fully appreciate Fleming until I got a little bit older. And actually, it's just now that I really made the commitment to read through all the Fleming novels. Jert, you want to weigh in at all? Sure, yeah. Much like Jason, I discovered the Fleming novels when I was in high school. I got The Man with the Golden Gun, thinking I would read it. I think we had to do book reports or something. And I was like, oh, you know, I know the story so well. Then I read the book. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know? I get an F on this book report. I, I described it. <laughs> Luckily, I read it. But to me, it was more of an exciting feeling. Like that's what made me want to go find more of the Bond novels. Yeah. Like, oh, it's different. Yeah, you know. And I think the next one I read after that was Moonraker. And you want to talk about different? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like nope. different. As you guys know, we did the audio version, the the literary audio version. So we all know the big differences now. But yeah, to me, it created a very exciting feeling. Like there's more content out there for me to chase now. So that was cool. But there are some novelizations, you know, John Gardner, I think, wrote the novelization of Goldeneye. And I think Benson wrote a couple novelizations, too. So, I mean, if that's did, something- uh, Gardner did did License to Kill, too. If yeah. that's something you want to chase, then those are available. Yeah. And then Raymond did the next three Brosnan ones. So, yeah. It's interesting that your first one was Man with a Golden Gun, because that was my first Fleming, too. I was actually, my first Fleming was Man with a Golden Gun in a Reader, Reader's Digest abridged books collection but it's interesting we both started with the last book i was gonna say and i now know <laughs> yeah. that that was his last novel yes. yeah <laughs> i didn't know it at the time either i just i could see jared now how to get an f on this book report i described scaramanga's funhouse to the in the, in the book report i was like and then christopher lee came in <laughs> oh i was been caught <laughs> and he said knickknack tabasco <laughs> and then that dude from fantasy island walked in is it okay, boss? <laughs> <laughs> and then Jared was sent to the principal's office. <laughs> Again. Oh, man. I lost control of the show. Where were we? I think Alan. It's Alan's turn for uh, another high or low. I was just thinking about the fact that you said Jared was a colicky baby. 
I said, nothing's really changed, has it? Right. <laughs> I knew. I knew it wasn't going to go without being addressed. <laughs> I knew it. Okay, back to the story. My second go around, what I really like about this story is it's one of the few times that Fleming really examines Bond's moral compass when he pulls the shot because it's a woman. Interesting difference between this story and the movie adaptation, because in the movie he pulls the shot not just because it's a woman, but it's clearly a woman who doesn't know how to handle a rifle. Well, in this, Trigger, the assassin, is very much a professional. He doesn't pull the shot because she doesn't know how to go. He pulls the shot to get the weapon out of her hand, but he doesn't want to kill her because it's a woman, which I thought was very interesting and sort of is a, a little insight into Bond's moral compass of, you know, doesn't matter what he'll do, he actually won't kill a woman in cold blood. So I thought that was an interesting insight into his sort of psyche and moral compass at this point. Yep. Well, let's dig down into that a little bit more. That was my initial reaction as well. I thought, well, Bond won't kill a woman. But is that true? Because it wasn't just a woman. It's a woman he'd been fantasizing about for three days. He'd already given that woman a backstory, and he'd already kind of had a mental fantasy relationship with her. So I wonder if it had been any other woman in that orchestra that he hadn't taken notice of, would the result have been the same? What do you guys think? I think that the only way Bond would do that, this Bond would do it, is if the woman did something to him first, you know, to make him want to do that. I think he, he would do what he did here and, you know, I'm not going to kill her, but I'm going to hurt her or at least to, you know, you know, not let her accomplish what needed to get accomplished, which he did. Everything got worked out. He just didn't have to kill her. Definitely hurting her left hand or whatever. And she ain't going to be able to shoot a gun or that the way she used to anymore and, and frazzled her. I don't think he would unless he was really provoked. But really do you think he would have, would he have done that if it had been a man in that window or any other woman that he hadn't thought about? Because where I'm going with this is, you know, part of like being a soldier is taking the human emotion out of killing. The moment that you humanize the enemy, it becomes very, very difficult. And I'm wondering if that was more what stopped him was the three days of him putting a human element to her, getting to know her, even if he didn't really know her, but in his fantasy, he did. And if that's what did it, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about the fact that he was projecting this fantasy character onto this actual human being he had zero contact with. Yeah. That's a very good point. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but I think you make a very good point there, Jason. But I also think, to Pat's point, that I think Bond would not kill a woman. And Bond would only really kill a woman if she was an immediate threat to him. Mm -hmm. To your point, if, if it had been another woman there, I think he probably still would have pulled the shot. Um, you would pull the shot no matter what? Yeah, okay. yeah, I think so. But I'd never really thought about the sort of fantasy projection point of view. So I'm going to have to reread it again and keep that in my mind. I might change <laughs> well, my mind. But So it's a great point, Jason. Really, really well thought out. Well, Jared hasn't spoken yet. I'm interested to hear what's your vote. He would have pulled the shot on any woman or that woman in particular. Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, my gut instinct says movie Bond pulls the shot on any woman. Literary Bond doesn't unless he's done this projection thing on her. But Jason, your point is well made because I was going to ask you and you kind of already answered it. You and I have both been on military patrol or not even necessarily patrol, but guard duty where you watch the same piece of land for days like he does. And your brain just automatically starts filling in. It sounds ridiculous, but you're like, you start giving personality to like the family of squirrels that you see every day at the same time. It's so monotonous and that's what you're seeing here. So Fleming definitely had a good handle on that, you know, militaristic hurry up and wait. That everybody in the military says, right, right, yeah, right. and then so you're there forever, and you start building something. Your brain gets bored, so you build. And Bond just built to that woman, got the result that we did. So yeah, there was definitely a vibe that I think you and I were definitely picking up on there from just having sat in a post, you know, for a long time. You know, it's one of those things where you sit a post, and especially if you can even see the enemy. I've never experience that but i've read stories about you know you see the enemy across the way be it world war ii or whatever 
and you get to start feeling like they're friends because you see them every day. They wave to you. You wave back. You know, it's a weird relationship. And that's I'll leave it at that. Well, this was a good discussion, though. Interesting. Um, and if any of the any of the audience has read it and wants to weigh in on this discussion, I'd love to hear that feedback as well. I think we've got one more high, low, or what the though. I think Jared, don't you uh, have one more that you want to get? Got another? I passage? guess I do, but we've really <laughs> kind of exhausted this material. You know what? I won't read another passage or anything to you, but I did notice at the very end. When they're getting ready to go, Bond actually makes some kind of a comment. Oh, I'll read it. I did find it. I'll read the sentence. Bond got up. He suddenly didn't want to leave the stinking little smashed up flat. So that is also an interesting bookie. You know, he he doesn't want to be there. He's sick of being there. He's sick of breathing his own stink and all this. And then when it's over, he doesn't want to leave because he's become comfortable with it. You know, and that's another thing that as a military member, I can associate with. Now, when it was time to leave Iraq, I wanted to leave. (laughs) I wasn't wasn't feeling that, but, you know, I didn't want to leave certain people. So I get that emotion. And then there's a certain comfort in the knowing what's there every day. And it's kind of neat, even when it's bad, even when it's bad, there's comfort to regularity. And I thought it was cool that. Fleming tapped into that. And that, that's the only last little dash I've got because we covered a lot, most of the deep stuff. Just going back to Fleming and Fleming's skill as a writer, again, I think not many people appreciate Fleming's ability to get into the psyche of his character and the psychology of his characters. And I think this story is, and just the discussion that he's just provoked between the four of us, is a perfect example of how deep a writer he is. He wasn't just People tend to think of Fleming as like, you know, it's it's the action, it's the travelogues, it's, it's the rich girls lifestyle. Girls and bullets and booze and name dropping brands and things like that. And no, I mean you think about this. You mentioned Moonraker earlier. The psychology of the card game in Moonraker is another great example where he really gets into the minds of the characters. And just that thing about, you know, he went through all this and almost Stockholm syndrome thing that he doesn't want to leave the dingy flat after he's been through all this mental pressure and the release of that mental pressure at the end. And then it's like, well, I've got used to this. I don't want it. To me, that's just another great example of just how skillful and deeper a writer Fleming was that a lot of people don't really appreciate. So I'll put my Fleming fanboy hat away now. And <laughs> no, I think that's well said. Well said. I thought he didn't want to leave because he knew he was going to get an ass chewing for him for watching the <laughs> but, shot. But <laughs> but, that, but that's an interesting point, too, is that, you know, he was like to Sanders or, or whatever. He's like, you know what? Go ahead. Put it in the report. I don't care. What's it going to do? Get rid of me out of, you know, so I don't have to be a double O again. I could just go back to a, a, you know, a normal life or whatever. I thought that was an interesting point to know that Bond, he's at the point to where he's like, I really don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be the tool. I don't want to be an instrument anymore. As a wise man once said, if he fires me, I'll thank him for it. (laughs) (laughs) But that is interesting. I was going to bring, bring up the only character we ever really talked about was Saunders or whatever his name was in the book. I just call him Saunders. Yeah, I know. He should have been Saunders. He was (laughs) Captain somebody. It was Saunders. Saunders. What was it? It I mean, that guy was Captain Sender. Sender. That guy was like spot on, wasn't he? I mean, if anybody was a direct from Fleming, this tight wad by the book. I'm going to put it in my report. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Saunders. My name's Sanders. No, it's not Saunders. Saunders. <laughs> I don't know your name, Saunders. But I thought it was, you know, just to kind of wrap up that last line of thought. I, I see where you're going with that, Jared, and, I, and Alan, too. I think that that's really well put. And it gets me wondering, you know, with Bond, he obviously can't have a healthy relationship with a woman, right? Like he cannot have a traditional healthy relationship. So much so that he has to build this imaginary one with this woman that it turns out he has to kill, can't kill. And at the end, he doesn't want to leave the apartment because the moment he does, that fantasy is over. And that's very interesting, interesting aspect of it. Hmm. Well, folks, I thank you for a good discussion. This was fun. I really like the story. I really like the talk. And I got uh, just I'll wrap it up with a few fun facts from the James Bond Literary Wikia. 
So I have three facts here that I thought were kind of interesting. The first was that Fleming's original title for this story was Trigger Finger. So that's kind of a cool name. The second was that Fleming was inspired by a British historian, Pat Reed, who actually escaped from a Nazi prisoner of war camp in Kolditz during World War II. His story was an inspiration for the short story. In real life, Reed used the noise from a nearby orchestra performance to cover his escape, and that's how he was able to escape without being heard. He waited for the orchestra to be playing and and got out. And finally, the assassin Trigger was inspired by Ian Fleming's half-sister, Amaryllis Fleming. Amaryllis was a cellist, and he even says in a passage in the book, and I'm quoting here, of course, Shugya had managed to look elegant, as did that girl, Amaryllis somebody. And that was a nod to his half-sister. And finally, it's time to move into the rating. And as a reminder, we rate this on a martini scale. So a seven is you loved it. It shook your martini. A six means it was excellent. Five, it was very good. Four, it was good. Three, just okay. Two, not so good. And one, you hated it. It stirred your martini. And Jared, I'm going to start with you. How many martinis are you going to give The Living Daylights? Man, that's a lot of pressure to go first here. Light them up. Light them up. Let's get seven in here. This is an easy read. This is definitive Fleming. It ties to one of my very favorite movies. Line them up. Shake it. Let's go. Everybody drink seven. Seven it is. All right. The bar is set at maximum height. Pat, are you going to clear it or are you going to set the bar a little bit lower? Well, somebody call a taxi for me and Jared. Because <laughs> we are going to need a ride home after drinking seven martinis. All right. That's going to be well, in the boot. We... <laughs> First place to look. <laughs> All right. So Jared and Pat have given it seven, but, you know, it's up to the the Fleming Foundation member here. Are they right? Is it a They're right. I am getting on the seven train, yes. Ooh, As I said ooh, several times, this is like my favorite Bond short story. And just think about the discussion it's just promoted this evening. So Jared's point, I think it's definitive Fleming. If you don't want to tackle any of the novels, if that's too much for you, but you want to read a great example of a Fleming Bond story, this is the one I'd recommend. Fantastic. Yes. Well, folks, we're going to have to break open another bottle of vodka because I'm taking seven shots myself. When I started this journey, I had several Bond short stories that I thought were really good action short stories. You know, For Your Eyes Only, Risico, A View to a Kill, and this one. And I honestly didn't remember. I was like, I wonder which one I'm going to end up liking the most. And after reading all four, I like the other three a lot. Don't get me wrong, but this one is top. So seven for me as well. Well, that's the show, folks. As a reminder to our audience, if you'd like to be part of the show, you can send us your questions, your comments, or trivia challenges. We haven't had a trivia challenge in a while, Jared. I'm, I'm feeling froggy, man. I'm feeling ornery. I'm ready for a trivia challenge. And if you got one, send it to ohmspod at outlook.com or over on our Twitter page. You can uh, reach us at ohmspod. Also, if you're an iTunes listener, we'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review for the show. That'll help us raise the show's profile to attract more of the 007 family to this program. As a reward for leaving a review, we will read your entire review on an upcoming episode of MI6 Rogue Agents. Well, fellas, I'd like to thank you all very much for joining me on this episode. Had a lot of fun. But before we go, let's find out where the listeners can find us on the Internet. Alan, we'll kick it off with you. You can find me online for James Bond stuff at Bond Lexicon on Twitter and at James Bond Lexicon on Tumblr and Instagram. And, of course, you can find us online at JamesBondLexicon.online, the companion website for the aforementioned James Bond Lexicon book. Now with twice as much green four. <laughs> Only in special <laughs> limited editions. That's right. <laughs> Jared, where can they find you? I just want to point out that the guy who escaped under the cover of the music, what was his name? Pat Reed? I think Pat, Pat Reed. Reed. 
Not only did he escape, but he escaped to a soundtrack. And that is badass. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Jason, I'm glad you asked. I'm at Yard Sale Artist. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's all at Yard Sale Artist. You can check out my wares at www.theyardsaleartist.com. What about you, Pat? Well, Jared, I'm glad you asked. You can find me on the Twitter at Christatos01. Jason? Well, you can find me at Weasel Skull on Twitter or Jason Albrick on Facebook and Instagram. Well, thank you for listening, and we hope you have enjoyed this episode of MI6 Rogue Agents. If you've enjoyed this crew and want to hear more from them, but in the realm of comic books, check out the Long Box Crusade. Pat, where can that be found? Jason, I am glad you asked. You can find the Long Box Crusade at www.longboxcrusade.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all at Long Box Crusade. Well, thanks again, fellas, for taking on yet another dangerous mission. We got through it unscathed. And thank you also to listeners for uh, coming along with us. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment on this or any other episodes, feel free to contact the show on Twitter at OHMSPod. Or again, you can email us OHMSPod at Outlook.com. And we hope to hear from you soon. Well, Pat, you're up next, because the next episode of MI6 Rogue Agents will feature your choice. And until we figure out what that is, on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, we'll return. Strawberry Chat! Once when I was with Am in Tokyo, we had an interesting experience. Outtakes. Thank you, Miss Moneypenny. That's all. That's all. My question. Sorry, was... slow. It's been a long day. Slow on the uptake there, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured you gave it as much love as you do all the jokes that I present to you on the program. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. That's true. That's true. I just completely ignore any of your jokes, anyway. So. No, I, what I wanted to see was Alan walk slowly down there with that like funeral dirge, you know, and then as soon as he gets there, and then he starts hopping and dancing down the we'll street. See those high knees, the yeah, high knees. I'll tell you what, if I'd have heard any of that music coming down the street, I would have run, man. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good idea. Did you listen to that for your eyes only music? Baby. The most thinly veiled lyrics of all time. I'd like to have some sex. <laughs> no, that didn't. Yeah. You know. Well, anyway. So I had three I facts. Piss in- Alan off now. <laughs> What what I do? What when I do? Delvin brought up facts from the wiki, I got all mad that he didn't get his facts from Alan's book. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is, I did look look in Alan's book. I also looked online and I looked at the the wiki to find a few 
a few nuggets. So it's kind of a compilation of things. But I nice, just nice safe, nice safe, Jason. Nice safe. It's true. I, I've got the book right here. I showed you. It's within arm's reach. This is this is my desk side reference manual right here. Have you really read it? Let's see the spine of it. Is it really creased at all or anything like I that? I can tell you it? this. What I've been no, now we better not be cracking the spine. While, not be... But I was I'm just reading kidding. Like one entry a day. <laughs> I was like, this will take me a while to go through it. But oh, at any rate, where was I? Oh, trivia. Okay, I'm actually going to do a quick diversion. I want to pick up on what you were talking about. You mentioned the Pat Reed Escape from Colditz that was yes. the inspiration for this. If anybody's interested in finding out more about that or just Colditz generally, there's a brilliant book that came out earlier this year by Ben McIntyre called Colditz Prisoners of the Castle, which is probably the definitive account of the Colditz prisoner of war camp and all the grade A prisoners. If nobody knows, if you don't know what Colditz is, it's the long, the Germans had the great idea of, of putting all the most persistent escapers in one prison camp together, um, which was going to be inescapable. And of course people they escaped. just they escaped. <laughs> it was just in and out. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a great book. It's, uh, and it goes into more detail about the whole Pat Reed escape, um, which was actually one of the first escapes from there. But, um, if anybody's interested in that, I highly recommend Ben McIntyre's uh, Cold It's Prisoners of the Castle. Um, and he did not pay me for that. Uh, you, you mentioned it, and I just read it a few weeks ago, and it's just a brilliant book. So, uh, um, Thanks for that, because, yeah, it was um, it was definitely – it was a rabbit hole I got sucked down when I started reading it. I mean, I found out a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, I just like – I can't include it all <laughs> in the show. But, and like, actually, one of the Vader pri- was one, part of that prison. Yeah. One, I was going to say one of the prisoners that was at Colditz was a certain Desmond Llewellyn as well. Really? Uh, Desmond she was, was actually there. a prisoner. Yeah. yeah. Now I know how they got out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So where can you find me online when I stop wittering about World War II stuff? And because <laughs> one of my favorite, one of my favorite World War II books was the biography of Robert Stanford Tuck, uh, uh, World War II flying ace, Battle of Britain, Spitfire pilot. And um, Doogie Bader uh, was also a, a World War II um, RAF ace during Battle of Britain. And he was the one actually playing the music to cover the escape. Uh, yeah, he was the Doogie, conductor of the orchestra. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was conducting the orchestra. And Doogie um, had. Uh, he had no lower legs. He lost uh, both of his lower legs in an a- uh, in in an accident like years before, and was like still had shot down like twenty two enemy planes and and helped uh, facilitate the escape. That was a man's man right there. Anyway, the WW two cast episode uh, one. You know Jason, me, Jared. It's like Christmas. Alan, we're going World War Two. James Bond. We're going. I World came War here to II. make a it joke all, about a guy escaping to a soundtrack, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> 